0: Welcome to another episode of Bringing Design Closer. My name is Gerry Scullion and I'm a service designer and founder of This Is HCD and CEO of thisisdoing.com, where we provide live online design and innovation classes, providing training for service designers, design researchers, product managers, user experience designers, content designers, and much, much more. In this episode, I speak with Irish garden designer and TV personality, Dermot Gavin, and he's presented gardens at the Chelsea Flower Show on nine occasions and he's also co-authored and authored at least 10 gardening related books. Now for regular listeners you will be familiar with a recent episode I did with 16-time Grammy award-winning producer Rafa Sardina. Well this episode is continuing on that trend and I'm really keen to explore other disciplines and see how they approach complex problems also how they approach their work. And I see gardening and working with nature as a direct parallel to working with organisations. They're both live cultures. So thinking like this, I was excited to speak with Diarmuid to see how he explores designing for the future and chat at length about external factors and how they can hinder the designer's vision. Diarmuid was a great guest and I wanted to give a big shout out to his wonderful Instagram page where he answers questions regularly through his live events on Instagram. So if you're interested in getting started with anything garden related, Diarmuid's your man. So let's get straight into the episode. Dermot, great to speak with you. People may recognise your name, but let's start off by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself.
1: Great to speak to you, Jerry Dermot Gavin, I'm 56, a <laughs> garden designer based in County Wicklow in Ireland, but up until recent times working in various places around the world. I work in a kind of contemporary vein, I suppose. Contemporary and quirky. I like my gardens to be slightly different, to acknowledge history, have a sense of
0: fun about them. Mm. How are they different? Because you know, when I when I look at your your wonderful Instagram feed, it's very um, inspiring. But I, I'm keen to see how you understand how, how are they different to say the traditional garden.
1: I just see things in a different way, and I always have. We're very lucky in this part of the world. In Ireland and Britain, we have this amazing, first of all, we have an amazing climate, temperate climate, so we can grow plants that have originated all around the world. Mm. And secondly, we're very garden aware, so we have this, everybody in these islands knows something about gardening. It's innate within us, whether it's the Garden of Eden, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon or, or whatever. But until relatively recent recent times, we've been Shackled to tradition garden styles of the past and a certain way of using plants. And I suppose my gardens might be different because I never saw things that way and I began to challenge things and take other influence. So, Mm. especially early in the 90s and the noughties, it might have been pop videos, magazine (laughs) design, uh, or technology, or whatever would have a big influence on me. I didn't see why one of the most creative disciplines I think that there is should be left behind, and we should only do something that an Edwardian lady had done 120 years ago. Uh, we were allowed to look around and absorb different ideas. So I think that would be the defining thing that would make, not all my gardens, because you have to be practical too, mm. but my innate way of thinking about gardens. Yeah. That would be the thing that makes it a little bit different.
0: And I mean, as I mentioned to you beforehand, and a lot of the listeners will know, I spent a lot of my professional career in Australia up until recently, and being exposed to Australian kind of culture and their appreciation for the outdoors, I could see that the garden wasn't just something that you looked at through a a foggy, you know, condensed kind of running down in, in a winter's kind of morning it was something that you used on a on a day-to-day basis and it was like bringing the outside in and they used it you know as a they used every day it was it was part of the life it was it was part of the, the garden was part of the home so how how are you seeing people in in this kind of weird time that we find ourselves in how are they seeing the kind of the, the usage of garden change
1: well it's very it's very interesting because mm. come lockdown Many people took refuge in the garden. The weather, it coincided with us getting our summer at mm. springtime. And then I think we got our winter during summer. But when we really needed it, when we were encouraged to stay put, not to travel, the weather was fantastic. And people sought refuge for whatever reason outside. Yeah. And because it was coinciding with spring, that is, in these islands, and in this part of the world, is when nature is at its best. Yeah. So you just see buds forming, blossoms appearing, and amazing amounts of growth. And people really got into the magic of that for a few different reasons. A, because they felt they needed something to do and they couldn't do it anywhere else. B, when, during times of turbulence, we turn to the basics and we like to nest and cocoon and absolutely go back to what we innately believe matters, and often, especially in Ireland, that is somewhere in the soil because so many of us would have some form of agricultural background, background in yeah. our family's past. So, all these things combined to wake people up. And as a gardener, it's very exciting because there was something happening anyway in terms of gardening. We were beginning to realize that we shouldn't garden as kind of 19. 19- fifties housewives in a way you know when you look back through magazines of these incredibly sexist ways of promoting goods and materials and chemicals and cleaning agents and, uh, and whatever in gardening we've kind of stuck to those ideas mm. that gardens should be pretty they're there to serve us and they should be neat and tidy at all times or else people would look down on you and feel you weren't doing your job. Yeah. So that was changing anyway. When the new gardener came along in March and April this year, that's what they latched onto: Gardening more for therapeutic reasons, for growing your own, for understanding how the natural world and our ecosystems work. And basic gardening, craft gardening, sowing seeds,
2: mm-hmm. raising
1: tomatoes, putting some lettuce in, growing the herbs, or
2: the potatoes
1: or whatever so we have a new generation of covid gardeners who are heavily invested and deeply committed to making it work
0: yeah it's something very primal as well i think it was a primal thing that i i, I found myself anyway about turning to be able to grow vegetables and and so forth That that i should add that I attempted to grow vegetables and I got a crop of about five or six. But I'm, I'm learning and it's, it's something that I don't claim to be a natural at. But you're right, the garden changed for me in terms of a place to look at through the windows, something to be, and it's something that I really enjoy. And it's where we connected, how we managed to find ourselves today speaking about
1: it. That's right. You see, I sense the enthusiasm in you. And I don't <laughs> sense the fact that what you feel was a limited yield or a limited crop is going to turn you off I think once you start you continue because it is the most working with nature working with the elements and helping things along it must be the most amazing form of creativity and it is incredible that in this technological age when our connectivity had to be through devices and machines and doom and all that sort of thing that we many of us turn to the absolute opposite yeah to find ourselves yeah and digging will do that getting cleaning an area of soil sowing some seeds looking after them tending them being amazed as they germinate and then begin to shoot up and produce yeah it's a remarkable thing
0: it really is like i mentioned um when we were emailing back and over the last couple of months about john thackeray who's an artist, uh, well, he's he's an author, but I consider him to be like an artist. He's a biodiversity, rural, um, regenerating designer, and he's based in in the south of France. And we spoke a number of times, but we spoke around the joys of composting. And it sounds like such a a mundane thing, but I'm I'm sure you can probably relate. And he has come to the realization that his compost is no longer a compost. It's like a a worm zoo, and. It's something that i've taken to as well like you know in these times kind of bringing back and enjoying the soil and actually you know using the soil to to bear fruit and and so forth
1: absolutely and you're right about composting it's it's incredibly satisfying <laughs> yeah. it's an amazing thing to do so in january i built three new bays three new mm. compost areas and every morning i go out now i'm just amazed that how much is eaten up by these so once you uh, pile your layers of organic matter on top i have chickens now too so i clean out the chicken coop that dirt goes in on top of the leaves and the garden debris and it all makes this lasagna this incredible (laughs) sandwich layer after layer that in time i'll be able to bring out use as a mulch or when i'm planting in areas of the garden for for a lot of people that that material is shipped off to landfill and it just becomes methane gas in time which is no good for our atmosphere so all of these things are only good and all of these things tend to ground you and tend to make you think again about what you want out of life yeah and i find that whole process very interesting
0: it makes you think before you act and that's what i found to be one of one of the the key behavior changes that i've noticed with myself
1: well also you disappear i mean i was just writing something recently about my relationship for years with with the garden at home here which wasn't great and the garden wasn't great for for many years because i was away all the time and also you know i had a bit of imposter syndrome what am i going to do with my own place with this house that I bought about 12 or 13 uh, years ago, and I couldn't decide. Yeah. I was in real turmoil about that, and eventually, you know, I got it together and started planting. But still, I'd arrive in on a Friday evening from the airport at about half 11 or midnight. On a Saturday morning, I'd kind of stagger out, blurry eyed with a black coffee, not knowing how to get into it. where to start what job to pick up and the the garden is a bit of a jungle there was one voice my head telling me you can't just leave it go and go and do it go to a cafe read the paper or something like that but once you do once you start the repetitive work so it might be planting it might be weeding it might be cutting the lawn it might be this rhythm kind of builds up and then i'd find myself wandering back into the house At eleven o'clock that night, having achieved a huge amount, having not thought about work, feeling exhausted but so enthusiastic about future projects and dreams, so it really does help to centre you.
0: How do you handle that whole kind of like your hobby is your profession? Because this is a thing that I've noticed. Like for me, like I, I love design, but I'm speaking about design and teaching about design every day, and the last thing I want to do in the evening is go and talk more about design like how are you handling that
1: i think because gardening is the passion so yeah. i would go off sometimes i find myself down the set of france working at multi-million euro properties or doing stuff for hards in london or, or, or whatever and seeing extraordinary penthouse gardens and believing passionately in what we should do and how we should achieve something and working with mm. the clients and dropping into their lifestyle and been so excited by that, but actually coming home and wanting none of it, just wanting my little plot. So it does separate and in your home garden, you do slow gardening. You haven't got the budgets that your clients would have. Mm. You grow stuff from seeds, from cuttings, from leftover plants, from places like the Chelsea Show or whatever. And it's just different. It's much more real to you. And when you're living year round we're very lucky to have four yeah. distinct seasons there's always something changing every day even during the day the light is changing during the week growth if you're away growth changes yeah from month to month the season changes so you're enjoying something and anticipating the yeah. next thing and it's all about you know having dreams as somebody very interested in design and the way gardens work and the way space works and the flow between architecture and outdoor space, I always have plans for what I want to do. As I'm digging away in the garden, you know, convinced myself that an idea that's popped into my head is the most brilliant thing ever, only to realize a week later, after being obsessed with this stuff, is the worst idea you've ever had. All these things keep you alive and keep you interested.
0: Absolutely. I'm really interested to learn more about your design process when designing a garden and I remember a number of months ago I was up in Mount Stewart in County Down I don't know if you know Mount Stewart Mount you, yep. yeah and it's it's a stunning estate and I was, I was reading a lot of the placards as I was walking around with the kids and the designer of these gardens didn't get to see them and it was that moment that I was like saying well actually he designed them and then he didn't get to see them how do you as a, as a garden designer balance that because you may not get to see the full fruits of your labour, I guess, and to see them being fully realised. How is that considered within the garden design process typically?
1: It's a little bit different these days because in gardening Mm. we live in an instant age. So if you want it instantly, you can have it instantly. And, Mm. you know, last year, a project in Dublin, we brought trees from Germany that were 30 years old and we brought 30 of them, I think. Uh, wow. across the continent on big trucks with escorts and, and whatever. So that can be done. And you also need to bring the expertise and know exactly what you're doing and know what the risks are and whatever. Mm. But you can have instant gardens. So it's not like, I'm, I'm always, I know Mount Shirt well and there's a great story behind the new lady of the manor been brought in from England and finding this our country house, but realizing there was a microclimate because it was on the shores yeah. of a of a lock, and what she could plant. And she had a great sense of humor, but she also was privileged. So she had a good budget and mm-hmm. she had I think soldiers who were based in a nearby barracks to help out because they were all, you know, it's you know the place that Winston Churchill used to visit during the 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 war and they they made a kind of comical friendly and amazing garden in terms of the plants that you people wouldn't have dreamed that many of the subtropical species they planted there would survive there but she recognized that they they would and interesting enough for you know the fairy tale mary mary quite contrary vaguely well mary mary quite contrary how does your garden go Roll with silver bells and cockle shells and something all in a row. And the Mary from that was her daughter. She lived there with ah. us there. And that's where the nursery rhyme uh, came from. A very beautiful place. I always think of Arthur Guinness and his wife, who lived in what's Lisa. known as St. Anne's Park in Rainey now, ah. and the avenues of evergreen oak that they would have planted. Because at that stage, you know, in the 1700s, Yes, they would never have dreamed of what they would become, and then also how democratic they would come be, that they'd be Mm. great, uh, they'd be enjoyed by so many, and not just the kind of gilded few. Where I live in Wicklow, uh, just up the road is the Parscourt estate in Enniskerry, and you have 150-year-old beech trees now just coming into, or just going past. Really maturity and been slowly uh, kind of replaced. So in those days, yes, you would never get to see. Although Capability Brown did invent the machine to transplant big species, but it would have been unusual to get to see. I think as a garden designer, you must know your stuff first. You must know a little bit about the science. You must know about the soil. Have an understanding of what it does, what it can do how it can be treated you must understand aspects where the sun is at different times of the day you must understand the climate that you're Mm. working with and then you know the world is your oyster because you're you're painting a picture that is ever-changing if you're an architect generally what you build the main outline of what you build will remain not if you're a gardener that's ever-changing and you're always adapting it to if you set out a magazine cover or something like that. That's what you do. You see the end result of your illustrator, but with a gardener, you have the solid background. You're working against that piece of mm. architecture or you're building your own piece of architecture as a pavilion or a structure structure in, in, in the garden. But the rest of it is ever-changing. So it takes time, and a lot of the really great gardeners down through the centuries have come to their amazing part of creativity much later in life because it does take, if you want to be good at it or if you have a passion to stick at it and really believe in what you're doing and if you're innovating, often that comes a little bit later in life.
0: Yeah. You mentioned there about the process of designing and, and the soil being integral to the success, I guess, of, of the garden. Yes. As regards soil, like, you know, when we're, we're designing services within organizations you you could look at a parallel between the culture of an organization and you know the culture within the soil almost so when it comes to plant selection i'm seeing a parallel between plants and being employees in in this conversation what are the things you need to consider when you're selecting your plants Are are there other external factors that need to be considered as well like you mentioned about the sun and the and the aspect but what about other external factors like insects and and stuff like that stuff that you you may not be able to see immediately
1: yes you can't see them immediately and yet they're hugely important and they're not only important for the environment that you're building up but they're with increasing urbanization with mm. almost factory farming especially in places like the states and brazil the garden the private garden becomes the refuge insects and pollinators so Whatever you do links in, in terms of green corridors, to so many other gardens and parks and nature reserves and national parks. And it's hugely important. So the soil, you, you need to understand soil. When I was in college, I studied in the Botanic Gardens in That's Dublin right. in the mid-80s. And there were so many lectures about chemicals back then. And it did my head in chemicals and phosphates. And nitrates. And it seemed sometimes garden, gardening was more about control and yield than just the natural world. And I didn't agree with it then. And, you know, I haven't agreed with it since. If we always strive to look for the biggest, the best, the brightest, it's not going to work. Understanding mm. that foundation, understanding what you're working with. And the basis of that and improving that sort the foundation of your organization of your garden, whatever it is, improving it in terms of adding what it really needs are letting it find its own way. There's different principles of gardening. Now, there's a principle called no dig. So you understand that the soil, um, the layers of soil and rock have built up their own ecosystem. Over the years and you try to interfere as little as possible while planting, there's another principle of rewilding, bringing things back to the way they were once. Although all these things have their own complications and you have to be careful to bring clients along with you because whereas you might understand the need for biodiversity, the client is generally just going to want something that's beautiful and will be very happy to check any the other boxes as long as it's convenient and mm. fits in with their soil. So understanding soil, understanding the makeup of soil, understanding that foundation for everything, understanding how you can improve it, and also understanding the communi- communication that goes along with that. Why you're doing something, letting everybody know and how. Because you're not going to be the one who is there on a daily and a weekly and a monthly basis maintaining this site, looking after the plants, or even possibly expanding in the future. So developing those principles and letting people know why is hugely important. And then when you come to the individual plants, this is where being a gardener is amazing. Because you stay young because you're always learning. Every day is a school day you see something that inspires you. It might be, you know, going for a walk with the dogs. It might be at this time of year, the light is so warm and rich and in the mornings or the evenings, the way the sun catches a seed head of a grass in the field or in the forest or whatever and trying to replicate or take inspiration from that and use it in one of your schemes because you know the very place that the soil is Damp, but generally Mm. free draining, and a Kerix, which is a sedge, would work very well and would in time give you the same effect. And you know the joy that that would give to your client or whoever's walking through the space. So, learning about plants, understanding what they can do, and never being afraid to be different or to stand your ground in something. When I was in college years back, we were brought a field trip to a nursery in Tipperary. And the nursery was owned by a Dutch man. And he was showing us the perfection of the trees he was growing. Absolutely straight stems. And they were amazing. These stems were stripped. So the crown of the tree was raised about two meters off the ground. And he said, if there's any deviation, we watch them all the time. If they grow this way or that way, we take them out, we chop them up, and we burn them. Hmm. And because that's what people wanted, standardization. And that is changing. And there is a place now for the individual and an understanding that nature isn't, well, it is perfect. But we tend to, through television programs, to shows like Chelsea Flower Show, through magazines and Instagram uh, and books. And, we make it too perfect and we yeah. encourage people to go for that so having your own ideas and taking inspiration from people who did things their own way is really important there was that great artist and movie director who what's his name he lived in a place actually he in, in the he, he worked with the actress Tilda Swinton. He lived Gilders in a place called Prospect Cottage on the Kent Coast. Derek Jarman, that's him. And he contracted HIV AIDS when there was no way of living with this awful condition. And he took okay. himself off to a desolate, windy beach and he bought an old kind of clapboard wooden cottage. And he developed the garden just from bits and pieces he found. And he would look at the television programs and he'd look at the magazines and he'd regard all the plants he saw with them as spoilt brats, overfed, overwatered, far too bright. They didn't, he didn't relate to them because they didn't reflect anything that was going on in his life. The struggle for survival, but the plants that he found on his beach walks or in the local nurseries did. And his garden became this amazing metaphor for what he was going through. And I think we need more of that.
0: Embrace individuality yes. of the plants is really, you know, what, what I'm hearing there, and it's it's the same within organisations. Embracing the, you know, everyone is is individual and everyone is unique in in their own sense.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and if we do embrace that, and it's only maybe in the past ten years we're beginning to do that. If we do embrace that, and if we do encourage that, and you know, or even just understand that, well, then the joys that that will lead to, the results of that, yeah. can be amazing.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit more around, after you finish the, the design process of a garden and the garden has been, you know, delivered to the client, what what are the behaviours that the client needs to do beyond that delivery? Like, so what do they, well, in terms of care and, and maintenance and stuff, what does that look like from a from a garden designer's perspective? What does a good... Maintenance plan um, look like in your eyes?
1: It's different in probably each and every case. Sometimes you're okay. creating a garden that the people who live in the house will look after themselves. Sometimes mm. a maintenance company or a guy or a girl who looks after gardens locally will will come in to do it. If it's that kind of high end garden, there's big, you you do you create a document and it will outline type of plants and their requirements. We're lucky in this country because, again, of our climate, we tend to have not a huge need for irrigation unless you're bringing in those huge trees Mm. where you wouldn't take the risk in the, the first five years or so. But if you're working on the continent, certainly irrigation is going to be key to the success of mature planting. A lot of the plants that garden designers will work with these days will be from specialist European nurseries. They will be plants that have been grown for from 7 to 30 years and they waiting for that perfect spot for them. So keeping those plants going is hugely important. There is a big vogue at the moment for meadows and a meadow can look really, really beautiful and is very easy to achieve. Using annual flowers the first year, but to keep a meadow growing or to establish a native meadow takes a huge amount of work. So the maintenance in that scenario, the instructions for cutting it twice a year, when you cut it to make sure the seeds have developed and dropped, how you ensure that one species doesn't become dominant over. There is a lot of dialogue that would go on there or certainly formal handover sessions with yeah. whoever's looking after it.
0: You mentioned one, and this is coming towards the end of the, the episode here, but I, I want to talk to you more around the role of seasonality. And you mentioned about Ireland being a, you know, and Europe being a, a great place to grow plants of all types. But what I'm really interested in is the kind of seasonality between autumn and winter. Organizations typically, they work to design and everything is great and everything is summertime, everything is in bloom. But that's not always the case within the garden world. In the garden world, there's times for, you know, sitting back and reflecting and stuff. And I saw an interview with yourself a number of years ago where you spoke around the importance of of reflection in in wintertime. So I I want to hear more of your thoughts around what gardeners typically do in winter.
1: Well, again, in this part of the world, we're very lucky because there's a huge amount of work from autumn on. But it brings up something else. There's, you know, everything being ephemeral in the Orient, in Japan. Yeah. They really adore their cherry trees. And when the cherry blossoms are about to bloom, a lot of the big cities will have weather forecasts just for the cherry trees. So they'll let people know when the blooms will be looking good in a particular district in the city and everybody pours out of their homes and their offices, and they go and they picnic under the trees, and they get madly drunk, and they're very emotional about this time because the cherry tree will signify the fleeting beauty of life itself to them. So we feel that all the time as gardeners. In spring, we have this euphoric feeling that can go on for about six weeks, And it's amazing when you come to kind of mid-April to right through May, because one day after the next, something more amazing is happening and happening and happening. In the middle of summer, you're trying to keep the colour going, because that's what people really appreciate when you're creating gardens. So when gardens are getting a little bit tired, and then towards the end of summer, it's a... At that oriental feeling of doom and gloom, all this beauty is about to pass and we have another six months before we get it again. But in early autumn, that changes. So around this period, you're beginning to realise, well, we'll have the, the leaf change, the different colours or some bulbs that come out at this time of the year. So nature has its own way of easing you gently from one season to the next. In the autumn, there's a huge amount of work to do. traditionally autumn and midwinter was a really good time for planting. So tradition because you get a lot of bare root stock, so stock uh, trees and shrubs with no soil attached, which was the way Mm. it was done. So we have a tradition of doing the big heavy work, weather permitting in winter. And January, February can be a little bit miserable, but I suppose I've insulated myself From that to a degree, because a lot of my work has to do with planning and dreaming. And I'm a very good daydreamer, so (laughs) I could be wondering about a scheme, a garden that we're going to plant, and imagining it as it is in full flower, even in the depths of winter. And all the technology and the aids that we have these days really help with that an awful lot. Yeah. And, and there's also that thing, I keep coming back to gardening in this part of the world. You know, maybe Ireland and New Zealand are the best places to be a gardener because of that temperate climate which the planet warming up in some elements of that. We don't get the heavy frost that we that we use get. Yeah. So growth continues. You'll know yourself that People talk about even uh, occasionally cutting the lawn in December. So it's never as bad, the climate or the weather, as it looks if you're looking from the inside yeah. out. And there's always something to do, whether it's practical or whether it's dreaming.
0: Absolutely. Dear, what would happen if you didn't do that work in wintertime?
1: You know what? Nothing happens. Nothing happens. And, you know, that's great too. I, I had a business issue not so long ago, uh, maybe about a year ago, I had myself involved in something that was really stressing me, and that about, uh, about opening a shop in a shopping centre just outside London, and the, this was a huge shopping centre, and the implications mm. for doing this and doing that and not doing this, and everything went wrong, and there was a big investor involved in Anyway, I took some advice. I went to meet somebody who ran the It's a Bagel chain in Dublin, and I'd never met her before. I sat down with her over a cup of coffee. And she gave me one of the best pieces of advice ever, of advice <laughs> I've ever heard. Because sometimes, Sam, just do nothing. And mm-hmm. I think whether that's in the garden or whether it's in life in general, let that, if you're too stressful, let it go and just see what happens. But sometimes it pays, whether you're outside or planning your next adventure, not to do anything and the problems will pass. Now, that particular problem is still, <laughs> it hasn't exactly passed, but the pressure has.
0: <laughs> Sage advice here from Dermot.
1: <laughs> the garden will sort itself. You know, nature is amazing. And a lot of what we do in the garden is our own invented intervention.
0: That's true. It, to, to a certain extent, I, I, I completely agree with you. Like, there's been times where I interfered with the garden and it didn't really make a it recovered on its own, shall we say.
1: <laughs> well, it's all about us, isn't it? It's all about us putting our thoughts and feelings and our desire for order and neatness. And I suppose, you know, that's a nature as a human being and left to its own devices, whatever is strongest, will grow.
0: Absolutely. Dear, if, if people want to reach out to you and follow you and keep across what you're doing, what's the best way for them to do that?
1: Instagram, I suppose, is the is the best way. We do a, a live broadcast mm-hmm. during the week every evening from 7 to 8 with a young Irish gardener called Paul Smith, and it's called Garden Conversations, or yeah. you can be easily on e- email, com. I'll
0: throw a link to both of those into the show notes, and I can I can definitely verify for the The broadcast on Instagram is great. I looked at a few of them, and they're very funny they're not the typical kind of garden kind of broadcast that you'd imagine where you're not always talking about flowers and stuff there's there's a lot of comedic value in there as well it can be anything (laughs) (laughs) shaving foam that's all i'll say shaving foam (laughs) dear it was great speaking with you today Uh, take care
1: great to talk to you jerry thank you very much
0: so there you have it that's all for this episode of bringing design closer if you like this episode, feel free to visit thisis8cd.com where you can access our back catalogue of over 100 episodes with episodes related to service design, product management, design research and much, much more. If you're interested in design and innovation training, feel free to check out our business, thisisdoing.com where you can join online classrooms and learn from the world's best design and innovation leaders. Join the This Is 8 CD newsletter where you'll receive updates from the network and also if you're interested, apply to join the Slack community on this is HCD.com. Stay safe and until next time take care.